Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Roberta Carmel, professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. This is the second half of a two-part interview on her career as a security scholar, teacher, regulator, and practitioner. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen to the first episode yet, now might be a good time to pause this one and check out the first part. We'll be here when you're ready. Roberta, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. Roberta, in our last conversation, we talked about your early career as a securities enforcer, as a private practitioner, and then ultimately as a member of the SEC yourself. And at the very end of our conversation, we talked about your transition from practice and public service to academia as a full-time professor for about 36 years now. During that time, how have you decided what topics are important that you want to write about and for whom do you write? Almost immediately after I stepped down from the commission, I was asked by the New York Law Journal to write a column on securities regulation, which was published every other month for many years. So a lot of the topics I chose were topics that I thought would be of interest to readers of the New York Law Journal, that is practicing lawyers, especially in the New York area. And a lot of it was what the SEC was doing in terms of new rulemaking or enforcement cases. Also, at that time, I went on the board of the New York Stock Exchange, or shortly after that, I went on the board of the New York Stock Exchange. So there were some issues that came up in that context that I also wrote about. And many of those columns were on topics that I then took and made into full-blown law review articles. It was an idea that I felt, all right, I think I want to elaborate on this. It's something important that is going on at the SEC or in the securities markets or in the law. And so a lot of these topics were focused on real-world developments. I would say my audience, to some extent, was the SEC, securities lawyers, obviously also securities academics. But I never was someone who wrote very theoretical articles. I think my articles were more grounded in interesting developments of the day. Shortly after you left the SEC, you wrote a book called Regulation by Prosecution, the Securities and Exchange Commission versus Corporate America. Could you talk about some of the ideas that motivated you to write that book, some of the ideas that come from the book, and to what extent have the SEC or other regulators heeded the recommendations of that book, and in what ways has it maybe not panned out as you had called for at the time? I wrote that book after I was no longer a SEC commissioner. On the other hand, many of the themes came out of the speeches that I made when I was a commissioner and the topics that I focused on as a commissioner because of SEC ethics rules, which were very strict. I was really not able to practice securities law for a couple of years, and that was what I did. So partly I wrote that book because I needed to have something to occupy myself with when I could not practice securities law. And also, I was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, I think, after I was stepping down, or maybe right as I was stepping down. And I was asked, so what are you going to do next? And very flippantly, I said, oh, I think I'll write a book. And then various people came into me and said, are you really going to write a book? We would be interested in supporting that effort, etc. I think the 
general theme of the book was something that I harped on as a commissioner, which is that I believe that regulation was a better way or rulemaking was a better way for administrative agencies to proceed with new ideas rather than enforcement cases. That's why it was called regulation by prosecution. I was critical of the way in which new law was made in enforcement cases. I think this did gather a lot of attention in the academic world as well as in practice, the practice world. And some people did afterwards talk about this, not as regulation by prosecution, maybe that was considered too harsh a label, but regulation by enforcement. And that cropped up in some law review articles. I also, in that book, focused on various national market ideas. There was a whole chapter on national market rulemaking after the 75 Act Amendments. I think that had some resonance at the time. It's really been bypassed by developments in the market since then. I also focused on some corporate governance ideas. I think we spoke about this in the last interview and my attitude toward boards of entirely independent directors. I was somewhat critical of that, and I I still am. I don't think it really worked out. If you looked at WorldCom, for example, which was such a debacle, it led in part to the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, it had a board of independent directors that didn't do any good. I don't think independent directors are sufficiently informed about what is happening inside a corporation. One big idea of this book is that we should pursue rulemaking through rulemaking and not through prosecution or enforcement. Do you see that happening today? Do you see agencies, particularly the SEC, are heeding your advice and doing rulemaking, doing regulation through rulemaking versus enforcement? Or do you see them relying on enforcement quite a bit? And if it's the latter, if they are still using enforcement as a tool of, of positive regulation, why might that be? And do you have a view on that now that might be a little bit different than in the 1970s when you originally wrote this book? I still believe that rulemaking is a superior way to govern than enforcement cases, because enforcement cases are only binding on the parties to that litigation. At the same time, I think rulemaking has become increasingly difficult because of partisanship at the SEC and in the courts and the way in which regulated entities and their organizations are constantly trying to get two bites at the apple so that even when a rulemaking has had a lot of comment and everyone has had a chance to say what they think, and then the agency passes a rule, there often is a strong dissent. Unfortunately, it has evolved in a partisan way. These dissents have evolved in a partisan way, so that if it's a Democratic commission, the Republican commissioners dissent, and then regulated entities or their organizations bring the matter to courts. And the D.C. court has been very sympathetic and has often vacated the rule. I think this is a very poor way for policy to proceed, for regulation to proceed. I I actually recently wrote a law review article about that was published in the Administrative Law Review. I think it has a title, something like Little Power Struggles Everywhere, (laughs) and that's what's been going on. So I'm not as critical as I once was about regulation by prosecution or regulation by enforcement. I still think it's 
not a good way to proceed, but I understand why it happens because rulemaking is so difficult. You write in a number of areas related to financial regulation. We'll talk about some of them in this interview, but the one that stands out to me and as a junior scholar, it's how I really first encountered your work is your comparative securities regulation work. This work frequently looks at Europe and the EU, but it also looks at jurisdictions like China. I wonder what motivated you to focus some of your scholarship on comparative securities regulation. How has this subfield evolved over time? What big questions have been answered and what are some of the big outstanding questions that you see today? I think I focused on this in part because Brooklyn Law School developed the International Business Law Center. And since I was one of the founders of that center, which has continued to this very day, and I think it was the first International Business Law Center at any law school. Many law schools afterwards established similar centers, but I think we were the first or one of the first anyway. So I thought, I'm leading this center. I have to focus my scholarship on international business law matters. In addition to that, I've always loved to travel, which I think is not a very good reason really for focusing on this field, but it has its advantages. And in fact, in the late 80s, early 90s, I had a Fulbright to go to the what was then the European communities. And I went to every securities Commission and stock exchange in the then 13 EC countries other than Greece and Ireland. I didn't get to the fringes, but I went everywhere else. And because of that and the developments that were going on at the time, I I did engage in quite a bit of scholarship about what was happening in the EU. In terms of China, I had a son who spent four years in China while he was working on his doctorate in Chinese politics. So I visited China a number of times and I found the country fascinating in terms of what was happening economically and politically and socially, and in terms of their then very nascent stock market. But I also, in my travels, went to other countries, and whenever I traveled somewhere, I was interested in what was going on in their securities markets. I, because I was on the board of the stock exchange from 1983 to 89, I ended up going to a lot of the meetings of the International Organization of Securities Commissions and also the International Organization of Stock Exchanges when they had their meetings. So this sparked my interest in all of these topics. And I was fortunate to be invited also to teach abroad. So I taught in the Brooklyn Law School programs in Italy and China, but I also taught in programs of other schools in other places. Paris was a great summer program that I was able to teach in. I I say it's kind of mixed interest in travel, but I also think I've always been an internationalist. One of my partners at one of the law firms once said that to me, Roberta, you are a real internationalist. I said, yes, I am. I am. I always have been. In your travels and in your conversations with regulators and uh, stock exchanges around the world, what big differences did you find between the American approach to uh, securities and market regulation and those of other countries? Are they converging or would you expect that they would converge? There has been some convergence, but the U.S. has always been more hands-on in terms of regulation. I can remember a long time ago going to a dinner with international bankers, not lawyers, but international bankers, a European, and they were 
at the time, very critical of the SEC, which was then implementing the national market system and also bringing a lot of enforcement cases. And yet, after all this criticism that I had to sit and listen to, one of the bankers said to me, oh, yeah, the U.S. is the only jurisdiction where everybody plays with their cards above the table. So I would say that's a good way to distinguish U.S. regulation from regulation elsewhere. During part of your time as a practicing lawyer, after you were an SEC commissioner and part of your time as a full-time law professor, you had the opportunity, as you mentioned, to serve on the board of the New York Stock Exchange before it became a subsidiary of a multinational for-profit entity. Could you talk a little bit about how that experience came about and what serving on the board was like? And then more specifically, how did that shape some of your views about self-regulatory organizations and your views and your scholarship in that area? At that time, the stock exchange had a constituency board, and then half the board had to be composed of public members, but this really meant persons who were not in the securities business. So these public members were a mix of CEOs of listed companies and then former government officials like myself. And so I was chosen as a public member. I think this was based on my performance as an SEC commissioner because I was sympathetic to the role of the stock exchange in market making and in self-regulation. And I was long a believer in self-regulation. And I think this was something that was very important in developing corporate governance principles. Many of the corporate governance ideas that are now in the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, originated in the listing rules of the New York Stock Exchange many years ago. So when I served on the board, the Stock Exchange was still an important public institution, and it continued to be for a number of years. But now it's just a computer in the sky, not really that important as a self-regulatory organization or in making markets the way it used to make markets. You've written extensively about SROs, and now you allude to maybe the decline of the New York Stock Exchange as an institution, at least, or as an SRO. I wonder what you see as some of the critical issues in the SRO space today or over the next decade, and how that's changed from the beginning of your academic career to today. I think self-regulation is now primarily in-house. In other words, it really is the compliance function of the banks and other uh, big companies. And that's where self-regulation takes place. I think something is lost when instead of self-regulation, we have government regulation, command and control rules of almost everything. It's true that NASD regulation is still theoretically a self-regulatory organization, but it is very changed from the way in which self-regulation used to work. I think that's a little sad, but I understand why it happened. In addition to serving on the New York Stock Exchange Board, you've had the unique experience of also serving as a public company director, a unique experience for academics, at least. As corporate academics, we often might write about boards of directors and senior management and their decision-making. Ours is ultimately usually going to be an outsider view. We might have a stylized view of decision-making processes. We might have some data to inform our, our research, but very rarely are we going to have an actual experience of having a seat at the table. 
you have had that experience. I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit and how it's shaped your insights as a scholar. I think it has shaped my insights as a scholar in terms of my views on corporate governance. I have written extensively about corporate governance. I think to an even greater extent, it probably shaped my teaching because for many years now, I have taught corporation law. And I find that often when we get to some topic, I stop and say to the students, yes, this is what the law says, but now let me tell you what goes on inside a boardroom. It's a little bit different. And I think the students like that. I'm opposed to having classes that are based on war stories, but I do feel sometimes that the students deserve to be told what is happening in the real world as opposed to what is in the cases or the law books or even the judges' opinions. I think that life is more complicated than one would think by just reading cases about the law. You've given your students the benefit of sometimes hearing about what actually happens in the real world, what happens in the room when you're there. Is there any advice you would give for academics who are listening to this conversation about what really happens or uh, ways to think about what really happens versus maybe a more stylized uh, version or what's in the law books or what might be reflected in a data set or something like that? Any advice there? It's difficult, but I think you just have to approach the law with a big capital L with a little bit of skepticism to the extent it describes what is going on in a boardroom. And also, I I sometimes tell students this too about cases, you know, there's one set of facts that's in the case. Then there's another set of facts that is what really happened, some of which overlaps with the facts in a case, but there are always background facts that never get into the case. So I think that lawyers have to just, and law professors have to have a little bit of skepticism about that. I remember when I was a law student and I wrote a moot court brief and I sent it to my father who was a lawyer and hoping for his approval. And he said, oh, well, this was a very easy job. You were given the facts. The hard part in practicing law is to ascertain what the facts are. And having started out as an enforcement attorney developing the facts for cases, I really appreciate that view because I found that to be true when I was developing enforcement cases. As a senior scholar, I wondered if there are any folks in the academy who are more mid-career scholars or junior scholars who you've admired as they've come up. Who might those people be and what has drawn you to them and their work? I'm so old that everybody seems like a junior scholar to me, but I think most of the people I'm going to mention in this reply are really on their way to being senior scholars at this point, but I have watched them develop. Two of them are participating in this program at Brooklyn Law School next month, and so I'm very happy about that. And they are Swally Amarova and Jill Fish, who always write in a very interesting way on a variety of topics. They are not scholars that have just focused narrowly on certain issues. Other scholars whose work I am interested in are Oneg Dombalagian, because he writes about market structure. Not that many security scholars in the academy write about market structure. I think Eric Gerding is another person who writes about market structure. I also am interested in Arthur Laby, because he writes about 
investment advisor regulation, another topic that isn't focused on for very many people. There's so many people I could mention. I'm sure I'm insulting everyone I know by not mentioning them because I'm very interested in a lot of different scholars, but I am particularly interested in those who don't just write about the usual topics like corporate governance, insider trading. These are popular because they are important, but they're also not necessarily where I think cutting edge developments are going on. You are drawn to scholars who get off the beaten path a little bit in the topics that they pick, and you're looking for the cutting edge. So I'd like to talk about the cutting edge a little bit. Where do you see the big issues in securities regulation, financial regulation more broadly being? Uh, What would you like to see people focus more time and attention to in terms of adding scholarship to the market? I think in a broad sense, the most important issues today are the way in which the private markets have diverged from the public markets. And this comes up in a number of different areas that I think are important. One is, and I should say Don Langevord has written about this, and I would encourage more writing on this topic. It's happened with regard to public offerings. The SEC has really gone along with and encouraged the development of private markets as opposed to public offerings. And I think the latest iteration of this are the SPACs, which to me are dangerous development. I always thought this kind of an offering was viewed with great suspicion. And when it happened in the penny stock era, it was basically outlawed. But now it seems like every other person who has any kind of a reputation, either on Wall Street or in sports or elsewhere, is floating a SPAC. I don't think this is a good way for the public offering market to take place. Another area where this is important is in the exemption for hedge funds and family offices. I don't know why hedge funds and family offices shouldn't be regulated just like regulated entities, which are investment advisors or broker dealers. I think this is, on the one hand, unfair competition. On the other hand, can lead to dangerous leverage in the markets. I think we've seen that in a variety of ways lately. And it seems to me this is another example of private versus public markets that should be examined. I think another important area is market structure. Again, we've seen what to me are somewhat crazy developments in market structure. And I guess the latest example of that is this Reddit Robinhood debacle. But it's just part of a lot of what's going on in the markets that are no longer really regulated by self-regulatory organizations or the SEC in a very comprehensive fashion. And then I think another important area is regulation of investment advisors because most retail investors are now being advised by investment advisors, not broker-dealers because of regulatory and other developments. And I think that it is important for the regulators to really focus on this before there is some kind of a market crash and a lot of people lose their money. (laughs) A lot of retail people lose their money. So that's just a small set of ideas that I have about what should be focused on now, not just by academics, but by the SEC. (laughs) For many years, you wrote a 
column in the New York Law Journal on securities regulation. And each time a new chair of the SEC would take office, you would write a column with advice for that person. Recently, we have had a new chair of the SEC take office, Gary Gensler. What would you recommend to him? I think I would recommend exactly what I said to you in response to your question about what academics should be writing about now. And that is to focus on the divergence between the public and private markets. I think that should be reconciled, should be closed up either by changing securities regulation or by changing the exemptions that has allowed so many professionals to avoid securities regulation. A lot of this has to do with the difference between Section 11 liability and Section 10b-5 liability. I would also advise him to focus on market structure because I think the markets are wild right now and they should be better regulated. The public market should be better regulated. This is another example of a divergence between regulated and unregulated markets. And I think he should focus on the regulation of investment advisors, because this is where retail investors are really interfacing with the markets today. And I think that is going to continue. Leverage, also leverage. Leverage is always something that the regulators don't bother to focus on until there's a market crash, but is excessive leverage that leads up to a market crash. While we're on the topic of advice, and this question is maybe somewhat self-regarding, so please excuse me for that, but as a junior scholar myself, I would be curious to hear what advice you have for me uh, setting off writing in the corporate and securities regulation area. And I believe we have a few junior scholars who listen to this podcast as well who are starting off in their careers. So what advice do you have for us? I think that you should write about topics that you feel passionate about, not necessarily the topics that everybody else is writing about. Sometimes you just want to be invited to conferences, so you tend to focus on what are the popular topics of the day. But I think in terms of getting good coverage and getting good placements, if you write articles on topics that you really care about, you're more likely to be successful. I also think you should write about topics that students are concerned about. They are the focus of academic life, the students. So I think you have to take a cue a little bit from your students. I can remember a couple of years ago when crowdfunding first came in, I was kind of critical of this. And the students in my securities class kind of pushed back at me and said, oh, Professor Carmel, you're such an old fogey. You don't know what's really going on in the markets. And then I said, all right, I have to think about this because my students have a very different view of what's happening than I do. With students at the center of the academy, let's talk about them a little bit. So you alluded to some of the real-world discussions that you try to incorporate in your classes, but I wondered if you could talk more uh, broadly about how the diverse experiences that you've had, the scholarship that you've done, how that has shaped you as a teacher and as a mentor for students. I think of myself as an old-fashioned teacher in the sense that I believe that the purpose of law school is to prepare law students for the profession. Probably a majority of them will go into law firms. Many will go into government. Many will go in-house. 
at various places, but they are being prepared to enter the legal profession. And I have always tried to make my classes cognizant of that. Sometimes when I've taught securities regulation to two L's and they've had summer jobs and then they come back in the fall, so they're still students, some of them will say to me, oh, Professor Carmel, I used your notes all summer. It was so helpful. I said, oh, great. That I consider a successful class that I gave you information that you could use in your job over the summer so that you will get an offer to go to that law firm. It's always been my idea of how I wanted to interact with students as a professor to prepare them for the profession and also to be ethical lawyers. Um, sometimes a topic will come up in class and I'll be a little shocked by some of the student responses. And I'll say, look, I don't want any of you to get into trouble when you are practicing law. You have to hold the line into being ethical lawyers as well as clever and smart lawyers. These two conversations that we've had have focused very much on securities regulation. And in fact, the title of this podcast episode is Roberta Carmel on securities regulation. But you've written in other areas too. And I wondered if you could talk about the other areas that you've written scholarship in, what's motivated you to write in those areas and hate to bring it back to securities regulation, but maybe how it intersects with your core area of securities regulation or areas that you've taught in apart from securities regulation and corporate law. I have often written on administrative law topics because securities regulation, after all, is administrative law, and administrative law has always been of interest to me. So sometimes I have written on administrative law as such. I have taught administrative law also over the years, and sometimes I've just focused on administrative law issues when I'm writing about securities law. I have also written extensively on EU law, and this is really part of my interest in international securities regulation. But I think some of my writing has gone beyond the capital markets in terms of EU law. And I also taught EU law for several years after my Fulbright. I found that very interesting. The only part I had trouble with was what they call competition law and we call antitrust law because it's quite different in the US and the EU. And I used to try and get a solicitor in to give at least one lecture in that space so that I wouldn't be giving students erroneous information. I've also taught on regulation of the legal profession, which has been a topic of great interest to me. It started out because of my objections to the bringing of disciplinary cases against attorneys by the SEC, but my interests have been much broader than that. And I've been particularly interested in the way in which the regulation of the legal profession has diverged from the way in which we regulate lawyers in the U.S. and the way in which lawyers and law firms are regulated in the EU, Australia, and elsewhere. Uh, so I've written on that. In your career from your earliest stages as an SEC enforcement lawyer, private practice, SEC commissioner, board service, you have been a pioneer as one of the first women, if not the first woman in the room. What did that mean for you? What challenges did you face as being a first or a near first? What impact did that have for 
women in those organizations? And what impact do you hope it's had for women to follow after in either the legal profession or the securities industry or corporate America? I hope I've been an inspiration to them as a pioneer. I hope I always did a good job so that uh, more women would be appointed to the position I had afterwards. I also have always advised younger women, lead a full life, lead a full life. Don't just be a lawyer or a law professor. Don't wait to become a partner. Don't wait to get tenure as a professor to round out your personal life. Because I've always believed in that. We haven't touched on this either, but I have four children and 10 grandchildren. So that's been a very important part of my life mixed in with everything else. And I think younger women need to take that into account in today's world, which is so much more competitive and so much more of a rat race, really, than it was when I entered the legal profession. Are there any key takeaways from this conversation or from our previous conversation that you'd like listeners to have? I think an answer that I would like to give is summing some of this up is that from the day I started law school, I have really loved the law love studying the law, focusing on the law. When I was in practice, I really enjoyed being a practicing lawyer. When I was in the government, I enjoyed being a government lawyer. And I have certainly enjoyed all the many years that I have been an academic and taught law. And Brooklyn Law School has been a very happy home for me because, among other things, it allowed me to not only be a teacher and an academic scholar, but to participate in other activities outside of the law school. And I don't think that all law schools would have been that tolerant of my varied interest. But I think it has benefited the school too. So I would say I've been a very lucky person. I've had a wonderful career as a lawyer, and I would certainly encourage younger people to go into the law. I think it is the last generalist field in many ways, and it's probably why lawyers have so much influence in our society, because they are generalists, and they worry about social issues, legal issues, political issues, economic issues. It's a window onto what's happening in the world. Our guest today has been Roberta Carmel, professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. This was the second half of a two-part interview on her career as a security scholar, teacher, regulator, and practitioner. Roberta, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for asking me all these interesting questions. It's made me think about my life, and that's a good thing. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.